Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. So we're taking a break from our series on the book of Romans during this Advent season to focus on the topic of Christ's incarnation. We've already started singing Christmas carols this morning. That's what this is about. It's Advent. Advent is a word that just means the arrival of somebody important. The advent of so-and-so is when that so-and-so came on the scene. Jesus' advent is what we're celebrating here, his coming in the flesh as a man, the incarnation. Last year, the duty of planning advent preaching series usually falls to me. Not something I enjoy, to be honest, but for the last few years, that's been my job. It's hard to know how to keep it fresh. What do you do? What, how, what grid do you use to plan it around? Last year, we planned it around the themes that are implied here in the Advent candles. Each candle has a theme or a topic that it's focused on, and that'll unfold over the course of the next four Sundays. Um, and we tied our preaching to the themes of those candles. This time, we're taking a little different tack. We're preaching through the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We've preached from the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke in Advent before many times. I don't know that we've ever preached through it, at least not in the last few years. So that's what we're going to do. That's going to culminate on Christmas Eve with the Christmas story, the account of Jesus' birth from Luke 2. Luke 1, our home for the next four Sundays, is a long chapter, a very rich chapter full of wonderful things. And it starts with this wonderful thing, the heralding or the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And that's what we're going to look at today from Luke 1, starting with verse 5. This is God's word. It is eternally true. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? 
for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us now from this portion of your word. We thank you for it. Would you open it up and would your spirits um, be at work using these words to change us, to instruct us, to help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you see, this is a long and very rich passage. I don't think we have time this morning, unfortunately, to go into all the corners or to cover it all. You might think that four sermons on one chapter of Scripture is overkill. This chapter, at least, it's not nearly enough. There's a lot going on. I want to try to draw out just five lessons from this long passage for us today. Here are the lessons. Godliness does not exempt us from suffering. Godliness does not exempt you or me from suffering. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's lesson number two. Number three, God remembers your prayers That's evident here, and we want to see how it is. Number four, John would be great, but Jesus said the littlest in his kingdom would be greater still. And the last lesson, God disciplines those he loves. We'll see each of these as we go through the passage. Lesson number one, godliness does not exempt us from suffering. This lesson's taken from verses 6 and 7, where we read that the priest Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But, verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So notice the perfections that are attributed to this couple. They're both righteous in God's sight. They walk blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Commandments refers and the commandments and requirements refer to different aspects or parts of God's law. By commandments he's referring to the moral law, the 10 commandments. So they were righteous morally, ethically. And also the, the, the requirements of the law 
are a reference to the ceremonies of the law, the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, the religious feasts and festivals, the dietary restrictions that were placed by God on the people. Incredibly, both Zacharias and Elizabeth are are commended here as blameless and righteous. They talk in literature. Brandon Chastain will know. I hear the the guys on the Bookening podcast talk about sympathetic characters. A sympathetic character is somebody you can relate to, right? Somebody you can find believable, that you can see yourself in. It's hard to see yourself in a description like this if you're a Christian. And you, if you're like me, you, you, you hear these, what you hope are hyperbolic um, expressions or descriptions of people. Otherwise, it's just, it's depressing. How is it that the Lord attributes such qualities, such perfections to these, this dear couple? This is not the only place we run into this difficulty in Scripture. There are other characters like this. Noah, back in Genesis, is described as a righteous man, blameless in his time. Job, we're told, was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. God describes the young King David as a man after his own heart. How do we make sense of God attributing such perfections to saints in the Scriptures? Well, we start with the knowledge from Romans, is it three? Romans three, that they are not perfect in themselves, for there is none righteous, not even one. And we can point to sins that are recorded in Scripture concerning each of these people. Noah, even Job. Certainly, Zacharias, in this passage, his unbelief, at the announcement from the angel is a sin on his part that is rebuked by the angel. So, immediately we think to ourselves, okay, this is a righteousness that is imputed to them by faith. This is the righteousness of faith. That's the righteousness I have. But that's not all. We also understand that these men really did walk in uncommonly righteous ways and are held up for us in Scripture as an example. Noah, Job, even Zacharias. These are people that we are to be challenged by, to aspire to be like. They're there as an example. So which is it? Is it righteousness imputed to them by faith, righteousness in Jesus, or is it righteous in life? J.C. Ryle says it's basically both and. It doesn't really matter how we interpret it here. doesn't really matter because those two are always inextricably linked. They're never separated. There are none justified, he says, who are not sanctified, and there are none sanctified who are not justified. What's interesting, with just about every one of these people in Scripture where God points out their attributes to them, you know, incredible degrees of righteousness and of obedience is that they live in times where that is scarce. And so it's, it's, in this case, it's to highlight that John was not given, born into some pig pen, but he did arise out of a godly family. And it was rare in those days. This was a time of hardness of heart in Israel. 
And it was, we're, we're meant to admire this, this dear godly couple who were just patiently walking in the ways of the Lord, who loved the Lord with their heart, were following his ways in a time when that was rare and scarce. Now, the point that I want to make, though, is that righteousness and blameless, godliness, even in an un, when it's uncommon and unusual in a situation like this, does not exempt us from suffering. We see it clearly because Zechariah and Elizabeth suffered greatly. Noah suffered greatly. He lived contra mundum, against the world. Remember, he's a preacher of righteousness. He's, God looked down from heaven on the sons of men. There were none righteous except this one man who followed him and was righteous in his generation. And Noah was, there, he had no support. He's building this huge boat. All he has with him is his family. You can imagine that he suffered a great deal of persecution and scorn from his neighbors. Job suffered the loss of children, possessions, and health. David was persecuted by Saul and forced into exile for years of his life. Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children. Now you may think among those things that that's the least significant, but none of those people that I mentioned would have thought of it that way. Children were so important to God's people. To be childless was a great burden, a very acute sorrow. Even today in our upside-down world, at least in this church, we know that there are people that God has given this sorrow to bear. And it's difficult. We see that it's difficult. We feel it with them. And here's the, here's the truth. God does not owe you a happy life. Christian. God does not owe you a happy life. He does not, he is not required to provide for you according to all of your desires. The path to heaven is paved by his design with suffering. It is with many tribulations or through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God, it says in Acts 14. Why is that the case? Why has God designed the Christian life to be so difficult, to be so filled with suffering? Why, when you're working so hard to follow him and to be godly, and you're not getting any support around you, and, you, you, and you're working hard, why, why does God still give you a cross to bear? Well, it's because, simply, your home is not here. You're being prepared for a different place, a different dwelling. And God is, the, the work of weaning you from this world, the work of turning your eyes upon him and to the world to come, is a difficult work. It's hard to break us free to instruct us in that path, to keep our eyes fixed on the prize. God puts obstacles, pains, suffering in our path to wean us from this world, to focus our eyes on him. And so what? They come to us as a gift from him. That pain that you carry, that thing that you mourn, that sorrow that 
you wish could be gone and removed or satisfied is a gift to you from God. If it drives you to the cross, if it drives you to prayer, if it causes you to, to long for a, play, a time and a place when those things will be no more, oh, then what a precious gift that is. It doesn't mean it's not difficult. There are many seriously difficult things that God has given us to bear. But they come to us from a, a loving Father who desires our good, who knows what we need, and is, pre- and is preparing us to be with him. So bear your cross, Christian. The way of godliness is not exempt or, or it's not a way of non-suffering. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So regular Israelites were not allowed into the temple. There was the temple proper, and around it was a big courtyard that had walls. And that's where the regular people could come. Not even the Gentiles, but the Israelites. Only the priests could enter the temple. And inside the temple, there were two rooms. There's the holy place. And then the holy place is the golden lampstand and the, the table with the representative sh- bread for each of the tribes of Israel, the showbread. And then right in front of this big curtain blocking off the the most holy place, is an altar of incense. And there's a special recipe that God says, you're not to make this recipe anywhere else. It's only for this altar. And it's, you're to offer this, this special incense on the altar twice a day, morning and evening. And so that's what we see going on here is Zacharias is chosen by lot. He's come up to Jerusalem along with his division. David had separated the priests into divisions many years before. He was of the division of Abijah. It was their turn, kind of like the National Guard. They lived their life outside of the city. They carried on a profession. When, when it was their turn for service, they came into the city, did their service, and then went back home. That's why he's there. And we see that the holy place was was not just a place where even the priests were coming in and out of willy-nilly. There was, there was, it was sacred. You were there, you went in there only if you had a job to do, and the jobs were, were not even just haphazard. They chose people very carefully. In this case, they cast lots to see whose job it would be to offer the incense. So that's why he's there. He goes into the temple, and what does he see? He's probably lying prostrate in front of the altar. He's there as a priest to offer prayers, not for himself, but for all of the nation. What does he see? He sees suddenly an angel of the Lord appears to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And how does Zacharias respond? Well, he responds the same way many godly people in Scripture respond. He's troubled when he sees the angel, and fear grips him. Why, does, why are angels fearsome things? I've gone on the record as being against those little figurines of angels, precious moments, angels. I hate them for aesthetic reasons, but I also hate them for biblical reasons. And this is one reason why, is because angels are fearsome. Fearsome. 
forget precious moments, if you even tried to make an angel that was fearsome, in, you know, like out of clay or paint a picture, you could not do it. And that's because the fear that they elicit is not a fear that can be portrayed that way. I think, I have a theory, I think that the fear that is elicited in the godly or that the angels communicate, what, what's so terrible about them is their will so intensely bound up with God's will, so foreign that it's just, you sense it. They are 100% committed to the Lord, perfectly attuned to his will, in conformity to it, and we're not. And I think you pick up on that immediately when you see an angel. That and the glory of God's presence in whose presence they live is certainly resting upon them like Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai had the glory of God upon him and the people said, would you cover your face? We can't bear to look at you. This is an angel. You can't paint that. It's alive. It's a will. It's glory. And we are reminded, men are reminded in, when they encounter, when they're face to face with such a being, that they are not, that God is holy. And that we are not ready to see him. That we don't belong in his presence. And I think that that's what's going on when, when an angel appears in scripture and people fall down and are gripped with fear. It's a fear of God communicated through the angel, touching us in our conscience and in our heart. Don't let anybody rob you of the holiness of God. This is just one place in which it can be robbed. It is often robbed. Angels are ubiquitous this time of year. <laughs> They're inane. They're cute. They're half naked. They're babies. They've got rosy cheeks. Don't let your view of God be corrupted through the common view of angels. They are terrifying beasts. God is to be feared. And that fear is not bad. It's not bad to be reminded that God is holy and that you are not. It's not, it's not, this, it's, in, it's good that we come to this account in scripture and we, we remember and we consider why fear would grip a man when he sees an, a, a creature like this. They're not animals, they're not beasts, they're creatures. It's good. Why is it good? Why do we not want to allow anybody to take the fear of God away from us? It's important that we understand why. Well, one, because that's who he is. He's holy. But why else? It's because Jesus is a mediator. 
And you can't begin to delight in him as a mediator, as your savior, without the fear of God. The fear of God brings us to worship and rejoice in the good news of Christ. You can't, Jesus, who needs Jesus if God is not holy? This Christmas season, let's restore for ourselves and our children and our neighbors the fear of the Lord, the holiness of God, not let the cuteness of the season define what it's about. Lesson number three, God remembers your prayers. I mean something a little different than that he hears and answers your prayers. I mean that he remembers them. And that's evident, I believe, here. We glean something uniquely encouraging from the fact that the angel tells an old, childless priest whose wife is well beyond childbearing years, your petition has been heard and your wife will bear a son. Had Zacharias asked that day for a child? I don't think so. Hardly any commentator I read thinks so. A couple of reasons. He's there not as a private citizen. He's there as a representative of the people, people as a, as a, in a mediatorial role to pray on behalf of the whole nation that God would show mercy and answer their prayers. Second of all, though, he's old. <laughs> he's way old. And you might think he had learned from Abraham and was asking God for a miracle. But when God shows up with the miracle, you, you see that he wasn't open for it. He didn't have any faith for that by how he responds. I don't think he prayed that day for a child. I think he had done praying that prayer a long time ago. God remembered it. And he said, your prayer has been heard and answered. I think that's, I think that's wonderful to think about God. That you can lodge with him a prayer. You can even forget about it yourself. And he is working and he is providing, and he will answer it. I was touched, very touched, by many of the testimonies and expressions of praise and thanksgiving given at our Thanksgiving Eve service this year. If you weren't there, you missed it. It was just wonderful. Ms. Margaret, I was thinking last night about what you said and how it relates to this. Margaret at the end of her time at the mic, just threw this in here. What did she say? She said, I also know that my son will bow the knee to Jesus. He, that will happen, or something like that. Remember that saying that, Margaret? I know that he will. That's what you said. I think that that is Margaret placing her faith in the memory of the Lord. Because what I heard you saying, Margaret, was I don't even, I'm not saying it will happen in my lifetime. I'm just saying it will happen. And I think that that's a wonderful way of professing confidence in the Lord's memory. 
we can leave a prayer with him and trust that he will provide and answer it. I recall to mind something amazing last night. I had forgotten all about, but now that I remember it, I remember exactly where I was, how I was feeling at the time. I remember 20 years ago, probably, standing, taking a walk in the country near my parents' home, and for some reason praying that God would allow me to find a way of setting his word to music in a fresh, new way. And then I forgot all about that. And then last night, four years into or more into a project of setting the Psalms to music with a bunch of people here, we're enjoying the fruit of it, and we see his blessing upon it, and it's really helpful to us. God has answered a prayer. That's the Lord. We can lodge with him a desire, a prayer. And even if it doesn't come to us, the answer doesn't come immediately, we can trust that he's at work. He doesn't forget. I think that's remarkable. What should that, what should that lead us to do? Well, to pray, to pray boldly and often to the Lord. Lesson number four. We read here that John would be great, but Jesus said that he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The angel told Zacharias that the child born to him would be great. Not great like Donald Trump. Not great like Kanye West. By the way, that video is weird. Do you see that, Jeremy? I want to talk to you about that. That was weird. Jeremy's our resident Kanye West expert. But great in the eyes of the Lord. Great as a minister. Great as a useful tool in the Lord's kingdom and in his house. Great for a purpose, a great purpose in the Lord's work. What was the apostle, what, what was John the Baptist's purpose. His calling was to, to be the forerunner, to make the way, to, to level the, the mountains, to, and to make a way in the wilderness, and to, to announce the, the coming of the Lord. He was the forerunner. It was his ministry to focus on turning hearts, converting people. The, the, the spiritual condition of of Israel in that day was hard-heartedness. And he was to come through and plow, up, plow it up and break up the hard soil so that the ministry of Jesus would be fruitful. What's, this is the, this is, he was, it was his job to turn the hearts of Israel's sons back to the faith and the God of their fathers. What, that's basically the ministry of all the prophets. That's not really what makes John unique. To, to focus on conversion is not a unique thing. All the prophets are doing this. They're going for the heart. They're saying, return to the Lord. Repent. That's the message of all the prophets. What sets John apart from and above the rest is his proximity to the Savior. It says in 1 Peter that all the prophets were 
well, it, let me just read it to you. First Peter 1, starting in verse 10, says, All those prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It's a complex sentence, but it's a really amazing thing. It's saying that all of the prophets in the Old Testament had the Spirit of Christ in them, and he was indicating things concerning himself that would come about, his sufferings and the glories to follow, and they were making careful searches and inquiries to find out more about that. The passage ends that, well, it goes on to say that they, were not ser- they knew that they were not serving themselves but you. And it also says that these are things, the things they're curious about, these are things that angels long to look into. The amazing work of God in Christ Jesus. They, they were peering with their prophetic eye as hard and deep into it as they could look, as God allowed them to see. They wanted more than anything to see and know and understand the Savior that had been promised. All these, though, says in Hebrews, died in faith, not having received the promise, but having welcomed it from afar. That's the prophets. John, though, would not see Christ from such a distance. John saw him in the flesh. This is what makes John so unique. He's the last and the greatest prophet because he has the place of greatest privilege of seeing more clearly fulfilled or somewhat fulfilled the work and ministry of the Savior. He would go belly to belly with Jesus while in the womb. Mary visits Elizabeth here later in this passage, and he would leap for joy in her womb. He would, he would announce to his listeners, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he knew that that was just right around the corner. And then he got to stand one day and see Jesus in the crowd and say, that's him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're a prophet, that's what you live for. He would touch Jesus with his hands as he went down into the water to be baptized. He would see the heavens open and a dove descend and hear the voice from heaven affirming Jesus. And because of this, John by far has the position of greatest honor and privilege among all of God's prophets. He was so close to Jesus that he could literally smell him. Because of this, because of this honor, Jesus would say, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. But he would also, in the same breath, go on to say, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How, how do you even make sense of that? Here's how you make sense of it. By the kingdom of God, Jesus is referring to his New Testament church. 
The kingdom that would flow and be created and come from his sacrifice and the outpouring of his spirit that would go international. The least person in that kingdom is greater than John. Here's how. It's because John, even though he saw the Savior, even though he touched him and got, got to be near him, died in faith, not having seen half of what you have, been, have, have had testified to you by the witnesses to Christ's death and resurrection. He died before that happened. He did not live to see the sufferings of Jesus. He did not see him hanging on a tree or groaning there. He did not see him laid in a tomb. He did not see him rise from the grave. He was not with the disciples when the Spirit was poured out upon them on Pentecost and that they were sent out with power to declare the wonderful things that Christ had done. He was not among them. John, like the Old Testament prophets, in a very real sense, died in faith, not having received the promises, but having welcomed them from afar. You have a lot more in your understanding than John. John would have died to have what you have. Now, see what, here's the challenge of this, right? There's a challenge coming. Can you sense it? John did amazing things. John was zealous for the Lord. John was bold in his preaching. John was used of God. And he didn't have half of what you have in his arsenal. I think we're in danger very much of underestimating the message we have received, its potency. I feel it when I stand up here to preach to you. And I have to remind myself the word of God is powerful, even when it feels weak. You have opportunities all the time to work to convert and turn people in your life. And you have incredible resources and knowledge. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. It transforms homes. It breaks down prison doors and sets captives free. You have something much more valuable. You have a greater and more sure word. You have a prophetic ministry entrusted to you, far greater than that of John. What are you doing with it? It's a great challenge to me and to you that we take the, the obligations of the knowledge we have received seriously and put it to use. Be generous with the gospel. Believe in its power to work. Love the people around you. You can read, in, in, I encourage you to do this. Turn to Luke 3 this afternoon when you're at home. Read about John's ministry. It was bold, it was practical. 
It was not, it was not impressive. You, though, can say many more profound things than John could just by the simple things that you've learned in Sunday school. The kids in our Sunday school classes are greater than John because of their knowledge. That comes with an obligation to all of us, brothers and sisters, that we would teach the people around us, preach to them, and be zealous to do that. The last lesson, lesson number five, is God disciplines those he loves. So Zechariah was told by the angel, don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife will bear a son. But Zechariah says to the angel, how will I know this for certain? You may not have noticed, but I'm an old man. And you probably don't know her. She's not here. She's out there with the people. So you might, I, I, can, you know, I can forgive you for not realizing she's old too. He's in the presence of a holy angel who has delivered this amazing message, which is not inconsistent with the example of several places in the Old Testament. We would expect he would know well the story of Abraham, the story of Hannah, and God's provision in many cases, working miracles. But Zechariah questions the word of God. He doubts. He wants to know for certain. It's not enough for him to be face-to-face with an angel. He wants further assurances. And so he's given one. (laughs) Here's a sign for you. I will shut your mouth. I love Gabriel's response. I am Gabriel. (laughs) I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and give you this happy news. And so you will be silent for questioning the Lord and doubting him. Now, here's the point. God did not, you see, like, God did not give up on Zacharias. This was a censure for his sin, but he was not done with Zacharias because of his sin. He loved this man. This man was precious to him. He's teaching Zacharias. We need to be taught. Our children need to be taught. It's not inconsistent at all with love to be rebuked. We need it. Zacharias needed it. He questioned the Lord. He was weak in faith. And God put him under a time of discipline so that he would learn. God is a loving father. I want to read to you a passage you know well, but the words are ever new, ever needed. Hard to remember, but sweet when we, when we hear them. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. 
For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The angel tells him, this censure will be lifted when everything I have said has come to pass. He doesn't say, okay, fine, I'm going to go to somebody else. I'm done with you. You didn't believe, so it rests on your faith. I'm, I'm a weak God, and I can't accomplish my pers- purposes except through somebody with strong faith. That should be an encouragement to you and me. <laughs> He's not waiting for you to be strong. He's not surprised to find that you're weak, but he is going to discipline you for it because he's not satisfied with you being, staying there. He's working with you. He was bringing Zacharias along. Even as an old man, he had lessons to learn. Do you think that that grew this man in faith? Mary, when she heard when Gabriel, the same angel, came to her and said, you're going to conceive a child and he will be the Messiah. Do you remember what she said? May it be done according to your word. That was a good response. And then immediately after this, she proclaims the praises of the Lord. Zacharias proclaims the praises of the Lord too, but not for nine or ten months. He had that long to think about it and to remember the goodness of God, the amazing power of God. So he has a song too, but it comes after Mary's at the birth of John. Love the Lord. What a good father we have. Let's worship him together and rejoice in him. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and its power. We pray that you would be patient with us in the weakness of our faith. We pray that you would help us to endure and to trust your discipline and receive it, knowing that it is a sign of your favor and your love and your commitment to us. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that you have made us your children And as children, you are tender and you remember our frame, that we are but dust. And we ask, Father, that you would strengthen our faith through this Advent season. And as we work our way through this chapter of your word, that you would continue to speak to us and strengthen us and increase our joy in your saving power through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.